Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. In antiquity, physicians believed that the liver was where love resided. Now we know how really important it is for our health. Hepatitis, cirrhosis, and the health of your liver. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans, your Prairie Doc this evening. Each of our internal organs has a specific function or functions. The liver plays a significant role in our health. First, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. What is the most common reason for liver transplant in the United States? Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about liver health as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on your screen. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Nazia Kazi of Avera Medical Group, Liver Disease, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Thanks for coming, Nazia. It's good to see you. Thanks for inviting me. And remotely via Zoom, we have Dr. Avash Kalra of Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center, the Transplant Center in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Avash. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I love this show because I get to invite my friends to come on. So I, Nazia and I met at an ACP um, Leadership Day at Washington, D.C., and you've been in Sioux Falls for about three years now. Is that right, Nazia? Almost three years now. Yeah, welcome. And, and Avash and I go way back. We were interns and residents together in Denver, and um, I, my, my kids turned five tomorrow, Avash. Avash and I shared an office when I was pregnant with my twins, and when I was he, he covered my butt when I was out on my, you know, four weeks of maternity leave or whatever, so. Yeah, time is, time is slow. I can't believe we're almost five. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So why don't, Nazi, could you start by just telling us a little bit about what hepatology is, what it is that you do, what kinds of patients you see in your day-to-day? -day? Sure. So um, hepatology is the science of liver diseases. So essentially mm -hmm. what we see is people who have liver diseases mm -hmm. and liver disease is not just uh, cirrhosis, which people usually associate it with people. They have a kind of name recognition, liver disease, cirrhosis, alcoholic liver disease. It's mm -hmm. actually a plethora of conditions yeah. that um, increasingly we have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. um, it comes, uh, there are genetic diseases like um, PBC. You will have metabolic diseases like hemochromatosis, Wilson's, um, and these are diseases where um, iron sticks to your liver or copper sticks to your liver or, or viral hepatitis, viral yeah. hepatitis A, B, C. So those are the diseases that we deal with. 
and uh, we also um, take care of patients uh, who need a liver transplant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Avash, you also see patients that have chronic liver disease and sort of before, during, after transplant. Tell us a little bit about um, what that process of sort of being the head of, head of this transplant team is like, um, the, the patients and, and how, what, what kind of patient gets a liver transplant? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, Kelly, liver transplant, you know, as I often tell our students and residents and fellows that rotate with us and even tell our patients, liver transplant in the grand scheme or history of medicine is a new field. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until the 1970s that liver transplant uh, was first successful. Um, but even then, in the 70s and 80s, a successful liver transplant meant meaning uh, that you might live for a year or two at best after mm -hmm. a transplant. And, and if we had those kinds of outcomes now, uh, no one obviously would be satisfied. So the modern era of transplant in terms of the outcomes we have, the successful outcomes that we have, really changed in the 1990s when our new medications became available to, um, to allow patients to accept the, the organ. Uh, and, and once things started to, to change in um, about 2000, 2001, you know, the, the modern era of transplant is only about 20 years old, um, which is really remarkable. And it's a constantly changing and evolving field, which is exciting. It's really exciting to work in that field. And it's exciting to help these patients um, to potentially offer a life-changing, a life-saving intervention, uh, which is what a transplant is. And patients who, who get a liver transplant uh, are patients who have ab severely abnormal liver function mm -hmm. or liver cancers, and there are specific conditions in both adults and pediatrics um, that qualify patients for liver transplant. It's really rewarding to help patients on that journey mm -hmm. to a transplant. And part of part of our field that Nazi and I both both do is take care not just of patients uh, on the transplant list or awaiting a transplant. Uh, but also after a transplant as well. And the, the management is obviously very different, uh, making sure that they accept that organ, um, don't reject it. There's certainly certain immune suppressing medications that patients get put on and making sure that that liver uh, lasts uh, for the rest of their hopefully healthy lives. Yeah, yeah, that is exciting. Um, there are terms that I think, you know, the public and patients here, and those might include fatty liver, and cirrhosis and, and some of those things that fall in between. Can you help us understand what's the difference between fatty liver, cirrhosis? How do we understand where someone falls at the spectrum of liver disease? Sure. So uh, I um, just wanted to start with the, the there's a, a certain stigma associated with patients uh, with mm -hmm. the term cirrhosis. Yeah. Um, and every time I have a patient come in, they are uh, they're surprised and sometimes they're angry. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't have cirrhosis because they associate it with with alcohol drinking. Right. They say, well, I haven't had a drink in my entire life. Why do I have cirrhosis? Right. So again, as I alluded to before, cirrhosis, it's not just alcohol. It's whatever inflames the liver. Mm -hmm. And fat can inflame the liver. Mm -hmm. um, uh, vir viruses can inflame the liver. Uh, metabolic issues like um, copper, mm -hmm. iron, etc., can inflame the liver. So they all lead to the same endpoint, mm -hmm. which is scarring of the liver. They sit in the liver, they irritate it, they inflame it, and the liver just turns into one big scar. Yeah. And that scar is the cirrhosis. Yeah. 
yeah. and that cirrhosis has complications, mm -hmm. then which, uh, regardless of where the cirrhosis came from, mm -hmm. uh, they all are the same. And that's our, uh, a part of our effort as well, to manage those complications, mm -hmm. and also then to go back and try to determine which disease is causing the cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah. Rush? Yeah. And I, you know, something that we ought, we I think is challenging as a primary care doctor is um, the the ever present incidental finding on my patient's CT scan of fatty infiltration of the liver, and patients are sometimes alarmed by that, and it's hard to it's hard to know how much meaning to attach to it all always just based on those incidental findings. So what you know, fatty infiltration of the liver that's something that probably we have viewers out there who have heard that. Um, what does it mean, and and what does it mean that they should be having done for their care? Great question. So a normal liver uh, should have no fat in it. Um, it's not normal for there to be fat in the liver, but we consider a liver to be abnormal when over 5% of it, it has fat. And, th and uh, that would be if you were to do a biopsy of the liver, for example. So taking a small uh, piece of the tissue and looking at under the microscope. But um, as you're alluding to, most patients aren't getting liver biopsies on a routine right. basis. They're, they're I'm seeing you often for other reasons, and they may get an ultrasound or a scan um, of their abdomen for other reasons, mm -hmm. and uh, show these changes in how the liver looks on the scan that's consistent with fat. So as I mentioned, there should be no fat, but fat in the liver is really common. Mm -hmm. um, actually, one in five Americans has an abnormal uh, amount of fat in the liver, mm -hmm. and uh, that is in large part due to um, a variety of factors, but increasing incidence of diabetes, increasing rates of obesity uh, in our country as well as the rest of the world. Um, and it's uh, becoming the most common reason for abnormal liver tests mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, development of cirrhosis. Cirrhosis, by the way, we should say as well, it just simply means development of scar tissue in the liver that basically forms bridges or what we call nodules throughout the liver. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, they're so we call that fibrous tissue or fibrosis. Um, and once it develops throughout the liver in those bridges and nodules, that's what we call cirrhosis of the liver, uh, which is not reversible. Um, that inflammation that happens in the liver cells due to fat can cause that fibrosis that mm -hmm. can lead to cirrhosis. Um, and you, you asked kind of how we tell how severe patient cirrhosis is when it gets to that point. Um, the, the, the two things I think to focus on would be there's really two questions. So are they having complications of their cirrhosis? And there are several that we may discuss mm -hmm. uh, in a little bit. Um, but also, are their liver cells in and around all that scar tissue working or not? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's based on their blood work. Yeah. Um, when, when we find fat in the liver, incidentally, you know, in the future, we may have medications to treat that, to reverse that fat. There are a lot of trials ongoing in the NIH uh, at this time, looking at certain medications that can reverse fat, reverse fibrosis. That would be the, um, the uh, goal in coming years. Right now, it's, it's diet, exercise, controlling diabetes, controlling your weight uh, in order to limit that fat. And that fat can actually go completely away with mm -hmm. those interventions. Yeah. Yeah, it, it ties into the obesity epidemic that we mm -hmm. have across the nation, indeed across the world. Yeah. So uh, some people are predisposed to get fatty liver. These right. are people who have diabetes, who have high cholesterol levels in their mm -hmm. blood, who have uh, who have 
central obesity. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are more predisposed, but mm -hmm. unfortunately we're seeing um, also lean NAFLD, which is small frames, and yet they have mm -hmm. uh, fatty infiltration of the liver as well, yeah. uh, especially in the, the Southeast Asian communities as well. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. um, so I tend to look at the entire body mass of the patient, because mm -hmm. it, it, it also depends on how much of you is muscle, how much is fat. Sure. So a lot of small compact people may have, you know, s small arms and legs, teeny arms mm -hmm. and legs, but there's the, the, all the fat is concentrated in the belly. Mm -hmm. So when we do see fat in the liver, as Rosh said, mm -hmm. it's incidental. Uh, yeah. They get an ultrasound or a CD for some other reason, and they are sent to us. Yeah. So our goal at that point in time is to determine a few things. Uh, uh, to determine if there's inflammation in the liver. Mm -hmm. Inflammation of that fat in the liver is called a non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Mm -hmm. So as against non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in which the fat just sits there, okay. but has not caused inflammation yet. Mm -hmm. But it progresses, it tends to progress to inflammation because mm -hmm. it's a foreign body for the liver. Sure. And the liver kind of it gets irritated and forms these, you know, <coughs> inflammate, <coughs> excuse me, has an inflammatory response to mm -hmm. it. And uh, that one that progresses mm -hmm. forms a scar. Yeah. So this is an important population to capture. Yeah. Um, so the ones that are non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or uh, we can, we're comfortable with discussing with the primary care and having, after evaluating them, mm -hmm. having the primary care manage them. Yeah. But the ones who have already progressed to steatohepatitis mm -hmm. are the ones we have to determine, like Arash said, what stage of fibrosis mm -hmm. they are. So fibrosis is staged from one, two, three, four, mm -hmm. cirrhosis. What stage are they? And depending on that, we manage them if they're stage fibrosis, stage one, two, three. Um, diet, exercise, right. which is the only things we have right. uh, at our disposal now can actually not only remove the fat, but also reverse that yeah. fibrosis. But when they, once they go into cirrhosis, mm -hmm. uh, then we have to manage the complications right. or plug them into the transplant program. Because yeah. the liver is, has this famous ability to regenerate cells, right? But, but there's a certain point where that's not true. Yeah. And when, when, it's, when there's scarring or cirrhosis present, then that becomes untrue. Yeah. We have some questions in our queue, so let's get to some viewer questions. Um, really basic and great question. How does alcohol affect the liver? Abash, can you start there? Sure. So uh, alcohol in excess uh, can injure those liver cells that we've been talking about. Um, so it's, it's directly what we call hepatotoxic or toxic to the liver. Um, alcohol, so, you know, this is a, one of the most commonly asked questions we get, certainly. Um, and Nazi already mentioned the, the stigma associated with the combination of alcohol use and liver disease. But uh, if somebody uses alcohol in excess, typically for a long period of time, that is going to lead to fibrosis, which we've discussed, and can lead to the development of cirrhosis. There are genetic factors at play in terms of who might be more susceptible to developing that, um, but we certainly know that heavy alcohol use, so more than one standard alcoholic beverage per day, um, is, is too much for most people, people uh, for the liver. That, that development of scarring typically happens over the course of many, many years of that mm -hmm. type of alcohol use. But we see a condition called alcoholic hepatitis, mm -hmm. which is a more severe uh, acute process 
that develops typically in younger patients with heavy alcohol use over the course of several months um, as opposed to years. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, I wanted to make this plug right here for what is excess alcohol drinking? Yeah. What is it? So for women, it's more than seven drinks a week. Mm -hmm. For men, it's more than 14 drinks a week. Mm -hmm. So how many of our uh, friends right. drink, go home and they unwind with a glass of wine? Right. So I just, uh, yeah, I think yeah. this is an opportunity to put it out there. Right, right. And I think that's a, it, it's a good thing to know that, um, you know, if you, if you were to catch a degree of more mild liver damage or fibrosis in someone who was drinking in excess, so those changes can be reversible with with um, changes in, in alcohol intake. So that's that's something that's that's a positive there. Um, a viewer asked, "I've been told to limit my ibuprofen intake due to my liver. What is the correlation there, Nazia?" Sure. So um, I because um, ibuprofen we restrict the use. In fact, we say done. Yeah. Once you're diagnosed with cirrhosis, no more, no more NSAIDs, no ibuprofen, no mm -hmm. naproxen, none of the cousin drugs. Mm -hmm. Because in cirrhotics, they have a, their entire uh, dynamics are changed mm -hmm. on the inside. So it, what ibuprofen will do is it shuts down their kidneys mm -hmm. and it makes them retain water. Yeah. In addition to like, you know, stomach ulcerations. Yeah. But primarily it just makes them bloat a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then the shut, you cannot afford to have two major organs shut down. Yeah. So, and then people are always very surprised because when they yeah. ask me about what medication should I take for pain, yeah. and I say Tylenol. Right. Because people in their mind associate Tylenol with acute liver failure because, you know. Of course. But, but that's if you take excessive amounts of alcohol, right. and, you know. It's yeah. Then, yeah. But, but otherwise, the only medication that mm -hmm. we are okay with our cirrhotics taking is uh, Tylenol, mm -hmm. not to exceed two grams in 24 hours. Right. Right, but for the, the aches and pains, that's actually the more safe yeah, choice but, but for them. Yeah, no ibuprofen, done. Yeah, good. Um, can, can we talk about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? So that's one of those genetic conditions that you were alluding to before. Avash, you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, so so alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, is a protein that is made in the liver, and um, its function is to basically uh, well, it has, a, it has several functions, but um, the, the key to this is that we all have two copies, essentially, of a gene that helps make this protein, okay? Uh, if you don't have the proper copies of those genes, uh, then you don't make the protein and have a deficiency, so alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. If you, have, if you are deficient in that protein, uh, then you're not able to counteract cells called macrophages in the lung, uh, that mm -hmm. uh, can therefore go unchecked and can cause lung damage. Mm -hmm. Now in the liver, what happens when uh, the protein is deficient, what's actually happening, the reason for the protein being deficient is that the uh, protein misfolds in the liver cell. So I mentioned that the protein is made in the liver cells. Mm -hmm. It folds abnormally uh, and accumulates in the liver. And that accumulation can cause injury to the liver cells and inflammation. Uh, and therefore can cause the progression of liver disease, just like other causes like alcohol and fat. Mm -hmm. uh, because anything that causes injury to those cells can cause that development of fibrosis. So those formed um, uh, abnormal proteins 
can lead to scarring mm -hmm. and development of cirrhosis in patients who have this genetic condition, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. It's also possible, uh, for the reason I mentioned, to develop lung disease as well. Yeah. Now, actually, it's actually interesting because there are newer medications that actually give infusions of the alpha-1 antitrypsin protein, sure. uh, but that only actually helps the lung. It doesn't yeah. actually help the liver because the, the reason for the problem in the liver is that the protein is already misformed. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a a possible reason for patients to need both a dual liver and lung transplant if their disease is severe enough. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, when it comes to if you have someone that would were to develop cirrhosis or a lot of fibrosis and you didn't have a clear, obvious, you know, one of the common reasons, there's a lot of things that can cause that, that problem. And so there's a lot of things like blood testing and ultimately liver biopsy that can help you figure that out. And so there are a lot of more rare causes, alpha-1 antitrypsin being one of those. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Kelly, yeah. because when we see patients, when yeah. Nazi and I see patients or any hepatologist sees patients with new, a new diagnosis mm -hmm. of cirrhosis, you know, we commonly tell patients that the common reasons include alcohol, fatty mm -hmm. liver disease, chronic hepatitis C, but we always do a workup for these other mm -hmm. conditions. Um, so Nazi alluded to these earlier with, for example, accumulation of iron, that would mm -hmm. be hemochromatosis. Uh, Wilson's disease um, is a copper uh, metabolism abnormality, obviously alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, autoimmune hepatitis. There are a lot of things we check for uh, to make sure that they don't um, have a second reason potentially yeah. or, or, or a, a missed primary reason for why they develop cirrhosis. Yeah. Agreed. And with 30% of the population now having fatty liver, mm -hmm. usually the chances of them having an another, another process ongoing is, is increasingly high, mm -hmm. and uh, for uh, you know, for and we have treatments for those. Sure. So when I see patients from that are referred from primary care physicians with me, so that's what I tell them. I said there are two goals to this visit. One is to uh, determine if there's another mm -hmm. cause, another reason for the inflammation in the liver, and then also to determine if you have if there's scarring of the liver and mm -hmm. what stage of scarring mm -hmm. we have. Yeah. Sometimes it's a mystery and then we proceed with a liver biopsy. Yeah. Good. Liver diseases may develop undetected over time. That was the case for former SDSU baseball coach Mark Eklund, who was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in 1994. Ten years later, he needed a liver transplant. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt sat down with Mark and his wife Becky to learn more about their story. It's a disease that kind of comes out of nowhere. It's an autoimmune disease. Um, there's no known cause, no known cure, except you get sicker and eventually you either die or you get a transplant. So I was fortunate to get the transplant. So there weren't any symptoms really until 10 years out. And then they were pretty mild for a while. But at the time he said, it'll probably be about 10 years. I saw a night sweats, really tough night sweats. And he was losing weight for no reason. And I knew that he hadn't had a checkup in 10 years. So I had read an article about viruses and how they can manifest themselves in night sweats. So I thought he had a virus. And I said, you need to go to the doctor. You need to check up. So he uh, eventually agreed. And he went to see Dr. Rick Holm. And Rick discovered the enlarged liver. Fortunately. She sent out a letter uh, to all our relatives and just explained what my situation was. We knew about living donors, and so she said, if you're interested, uh, 
here's the phone number and turned out that he did get a living donor <clears throat> and the living donor is my first cousin not his not a blood relative of his it's my my relative and um, she felt called to do it I didn't know she was going to rape Mayo for testing until it was a done deal and her mother called me my aunt and said guess what um, I think you're going to get a transplant. It just still blows my mind that somebody would volunteer to go through a surgery like that. Um, but she did, and it turned out just fine. She's healthy. He got half of her liver. He's healthy. I mean, here we are <laughs> all these years later. Um, both livers regenerated and grew back to full-size livers, and it's a happy, happy ending for us. He's living proof that transplants work. So I think it's always important to remind people to put a D on their driver's license. You can be a donor, a deceased donor. But that if the opportunity arises to be a living donor, it's an, an incredible opportunity to save somebody's life. And both of my cousins, Karen and Peter, have both said that they would do it again in a heartbeat. That for them it was as thrilling to do that for him as it was for him to receive. What a great story about a successful and long-lasting transplant, which is what you guys are alluding to, part of, part of the awesome part of your job. We have a bunch of questions coming in, so let's get to some of those. What is the connection, nausea, between hepatitis C and baby boomers? We see these commercials out there for, you know, hepatitis C medication right. saying all baby boomers get screened. Why, why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, six months ago, they actually extended the... the, the, the <laughs> Everyone about 18 is recommended to get treated, uh, tested for hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. But it all began with, began with baby boomers. Yeah. People who were born would be 1945 and 1965, and they were found to have a higher, uh, you know, it was the rolling rocking 60s. Like mm -hmm. people experimented, they were trying mm -hmm. to expand their minds, etc. It's that it was a time of Vietnam War as yeah, well, yeah. when you know again people that you know that were deployed in Vietnam, the veterans mm -hmm. that they became when they came back, they came back with hepatitis C as mm -hmm. well because they were again um, one of the one of the uh, hepatitis C is spread by IV drug use mm -hmm. by sharing needles, etc. So a lot of them got hepatitis C through that modality. But we didn't even know about hepatitis C at that time, right? We did it not wasn't know. discovered until no. the 80s. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't. So yeah. it was called non-A, non-B, because right. we had discovered hepatitis A virus. We right. know what that looked like, and mm -hmm. we knew what B looked like. We did not know about, right. it was a non-A, non-B, but it had this, it, it caused hepatitis, mm -hmm. which is inflammation of the liver. And, um, and, and then they, they, we saw that a substantial number of patients with hep C or hepatitis C came from this cohort. So we call it the birth cohort and we urge that people get yeah. tested because, um, and, and we picked up a lot of patients with hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And that is very important because um, typically hepatitis C infection will not give you any symptoms. Right. Because that's what your patients will tell you. It's mm -hmm. not bothering me. Right. I, I was told 15 years ago that I have hepatitis C, I have no symptoms. It's, it's, it's 
I'm fine with it. Right. Sometimes even their lab work does not reflect a change in the liver enzymes. Yeah. But what happens over, but it's, it's a virus that, that lives in your liver mm -hmm. and it causes the same irritation, inflammation yeah. and scarring. So these people also started presenting with liver cancer, right. presenting with cirrhosis as well. Mm -hmm. So I say, uh, again, if there's a message that I want to kind of send yeah. out to the world, that was that it's a, you know, hep liver cancer, mm -hmm. primary liver cancer is preventable. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just let's treat the hepatitis yeah. C. Yeah. And, and, and if it's F3, there's, reverse, there's reversal of fibrosis mm -hmm. as well. Again, not cirrhosis, but yeah. fibrosis up until F3 is reversible. You treat the patients, it all goes yeah. away. And we're preventing death, we're preventing transplant, yeah. we're preventing liver cancer. Yeah. And you know, screening is as simple as a blood test. It's yeah. not a difficult test to do. It's something you can have done at your primary care doctors, pretty painless. And I mean, the other thing that's really changed even in the last 10 years is treatment. So there's a great yeah. reason to screen people yeah. now because treatment, which we've had treatment for a while, but you know, when I learned about treatment first as a resident, it was like, well, you're gonna give pe make people feel like they have the flu for yeah. months on end and they may or may not have, have curative. Our treatments now, tell us about our treatments now, Avash. They're, yeah. they're so successful and well-tolerated, right? Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tell the story often, the very first patient I ever saw as a medical student rotating on the wards was a patient with chronic hepatitis C at the VA hospital. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't really imagine, uh, you know, all these years later that treating hepatitis C would be one of the easiest things we actually do in hepatology. Yeah. It's really, really amazing. Um, the, the other thing, um, what I wanted to say is that before 1992, blood, so people donate blood mm -hmm. and somebody needs a blood transfusion, blood was not routinely screened. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse, or what I should say is there was no widespread screening for hepatitis yeah. C in that blood until after yeah. 1992. And so uh, a lot of those patients in the patient population we talked about um, actually got hepatitis C from a blood transfusion. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so in, in uh, the past few years, all of these medications, and, and you see them on TV commercials and in ads and magazines, um, have such an amazing success rate in cure, uh, curing hepatitis C. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not too common in, medic in medicine where we manage a lot of chronic diseases right. to use the word cure, and we can use that now. Um, you're right, there were treatments for hepatitis C before, um, and the side effects, unfortunately, were severe. They work less than half the time. Uh, some of the side effects were similar to side effects that people might get from chemotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. Medications now are pills that you take for a few weeks, depending on mm -hmm. um, a variety of factors. And uh, about 95 to 99% in most cases, um, those patients are cured, meaning at 12 weeks after stopping the medication, they have no detectable virus, yeah. which is really, truly remarkable. Um, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine this year was awarded to three scientists yeah. who discovered hepatitis C. Yeah. And um, it actually, three separate labs, uh, including in the US and Europe, uh, worked independently essentially to identify the hepatitis C virus because, as Nazia mentioned, it was called non A, non B hepatitis. Yeah. Um, I always joke that if I had been around back then, I probably would have just called it hepatitis C. <laughs> you like to think well, that. <laughs> logical next step, but they called it non-A, non-B. Regardless, when they discovered hepatitis C, it, that's what's led to uh, where we are now where we can treat hepatitis C so easily. It's, it's yeah. really uh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting a lot of questions come in, so we're going to try to go a little quick answers here for a few minutes. 
A woman from Madison wants to hear about hemochromatosis. Is it hereditary and how do you test for it? Nausea. Oh, yes it is, mm -hmm. it can be. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, um, it's, it's very easy, it's a very easy uh, test. And mm -hmm. um, if uh, we do the ferritin and we the trans, it's a, a part of your blood panel yeah. that you get when you even come to your primary care. Yeah. And, um, and then we test for genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. So if the mutation's there, and we can tell if the patient is holding on to, uh, to iron, mm -hmm. and uh, we just have them go and give their blood weekly till, yeah. it all, till all the iron comes out. Yeah. So it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's a very nice, and sometimes that blood is actually used for, uh, you know, for people sure. who need it. For so doing. it's uh, yeah. not only is that condition being cured, mm -hmm. but only they're benefiting the society by, you know, by their blood being used. Yeah. Yeah. Great. A woman from Sioux Falls would like to know how porphyria fits into the liver disease category. You want to take that, Avash? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so there are uh, a variety of compounds that can cause a, a, a category of liver disease that we can call metabolic liver diseases. And um, so the condition that uh, the, the viewer or listener may be referring to is called acute intermittent porphyria. Um, and basically, it's a condition where somebody is deficient in a protein called an enzyme or multiple enzymes that basically cause development of a compound uh, called uh, porphyrin, uh, which accumulates in liver cells. So it's just yet another toxin. The, the thing, I guess, to, to keep in mind here is that the liver it's sort of a clearinghouse for toxins. That's one of its functions. Uh, and if there are too much, too many toxins that the liver uh, can't clear, they can build up um, in your system and, and damage those liver cells and lead to, to um, abnormal liver function. Yeah, good. Um, how does COVID-19 affect the liver? Nazia, have you seen much about COVID-19 in the liver? The COVID loves lungs. It definitely loves the, the kidneys as well, but it doesn't love the liver much, thank God. So you may have some elevation of liver enzymes, so it doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't seek out the liver. Yeah. Does it seem to cause long-term yep. damage to the liver? Yeah. We do see the labs look abnormal, but okay. Um, a man from Sioux Falls is wondering why men can drink two drinks a day and women only one. Is it because of uh, just size and physical differences? Avash, do you have a, a good response to that one? Uh, yeah, so, so there are, it's, it's likely related to um, average size and the ability, therefore, of the liver, uh, which um, correlates in size, typically, um, to the person, uh, the ability of that liver to then process the alcohol. Um, you know, there's been a lot of you know, we can say controversy about that recommendation. Um, you know, the, the standard definition of what, what too much alcohol means, you know, uh, as Nazia mentioned uh, at the start, this concept of more than one and women, more than two in men, that, that may be changing. Uh, there's more data suggesting that really more than one in everybody is too much if you're talking about daily use. Yeah. So um, it's a good question. There, that's uh, a, an area that's sort of uh, continuing to be discussed in research. Yeah, good. Before undergoing a liver transplant, patients are put on a national waiting list, allowing doctors to prioritize those with the most severe need. Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt spoke with a Sioux Falls transplant coordinator about the process. Our role as transplant coordinators is really to guide the patient through the transplant process. And that starts with the referral process where their, their primary physician or their gastroenterologist um, or even themselves refer themselves in for transplant. And we guide them through the evaluation so that 
lots of testing that we have to do to make sure they're healthy enough to go through surgery. And then also what we call people visits. So they have to see the social worker, the dietitian, the pharmacist, the financial coordinator, cardiologist, the hepatologist or liver doctor, and then our transplant surgeon. We help organize all that testing and we help them navigate their way through the days. Um, that's usually a three-day process. So we help them navigate their way through the days, get them through that process. The first part of that process is really us as coordinators sitting down with the patient and making sure they understand what transplant is and why they've been referred for transplant and what role transplant plays in their health care. Um, it's one option for them for treating their liver disease. We tell them um, all about the evaluation process, the listing process, the transplant process, and then what's to come for them for the rest of their lives after they get a transplant. Our role as transplant coordinators is, is really instrumental in helping them understand that and going into it with a good understanding um, because transplant isn't for everybody and it's, it's a choice for them. So we help them understand that. Us coordinators get to follow the patient from the minute they're referred um, through the rest of their time after transplant. So it's a great continuum for us because we really get to know the patient and their family. It's so variable because, you know, some people when they start with liver disease don't necessarily need a transplant right away. So they may sit with their liver disease for a, a couple of years before they're at the point of needing a transplant. And some people come in and they're already super sick and need a transplant immediately. The other thing that really impacts how quickly somebody gets a transplant is how they go on the transplant waiting list. And that's with the MELS score, the model for end-stage liver disease. It's a calculation that really tells us how sick you are. We plug lab values into that equation and it gives us a score and first go from six to 40. Six means you don't really need a transplant. 40 means you need a transplant today you're really sick. And the wait list is all about that score. So the higher your score, the higher you are on the list, the sooner you're going to get a transplant. So that's why I say it's so variable because if your score is 15, you're going to wait quite a while for a transplant. But if your score is 35 to 40, we're hoping that you're going to get a transplant within the next couple of weeks. Well, before that, we were talking about hepatitis C treatments, and certainly these these medications are rather new. They're, they're they can be very expensive. I mean, if you had to pay out of pocket, they'd be prohibitively expensive for most people. Do you find, practically speaking, nausea that that's a barrier for patients, or how do you deal with that? It is a barrier for people because mm -hmm. they're very expensive. And but I again, I want the message to go out into the real world is that if. Uh, Avera, our hospital, mm -hmm. and I'm sure other hospitals as well. And uh, there's funding. Avera has a foundation that mm -hmm. helps people that that gives them money to for for that treatment. Mm -hmm. Or um, or there are state funding programs. There are uh, federal funding pro programs. Mm -hmm. So people shouldn't uh, uh, shouldn't stop coming to us thinking, oh, it's prohibitively expensive. I mm -hmm. can't do it. We can not only help you within our local organizations. We can also help you um, to plug you into these other organizations 
organizations that uh, us state and federally funded are able to help you. In addition, the, 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 the drug companies, the, all drug, every drug company has a program that kind of, uh, in which they, they, they give some of their drugs free of charge. Mm -hmm. And we can help you and we'll be the, the, the conduit. We'll, be, we'll plug you with them and help you get medications for free as well. We're here to help everybody. Yeah. And I think there's no greater cause than to make that connection so that you know the, the, the a miserable outcome is prevented. Yeah. So come all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And you know your your offices are doing this all the time, right? All it's the not time. like you know someone yeah. should feel like they're the only one. You're helping all most patients that you prescribe that treatment for probably yeah. need some assistance with yeah. it. Yeah. And even if you're uninsured, will help you with this. Yeah. If you're underinsured, will help you. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You sometimes people have insurance, but then they find that the copay is sure. prohibitive. But even those, we're, we're, we're here to help you. Yeah, yeah good. Um, we have a few more questions. Um, we, I, a woman from Mitchell is wondering what causes elevated liver enzymes. And so, I mean, everything we've talked about, every disease type we've talked about can cause elevated liver enzymes. How about we talk about some things that can maybe cause temporarily elevated liver enzymes. And I see this a lot. Sometimes we see elevated liver enzymes. I say, well, come back in a week and let's recheck them and things normalize, and that happens a lot. Avash, what are some common causes of that? Sure, um, so, so a lot of it depends on how the degree of elevation, but certainly a mild, moderate degree of liver mm -hmm. enzyme elevation. Uh, and so for the listeners and viewers, liver enzymes are proteins made in the liver cells that get released into the bloodstream if the liver is unhappy or injured for some reason. So heavy alcohol use, for example, active uh, fatty inflammation, so as as you mentioned, what we call steatohepatitis. But a really common reason is actually medications uh, mm. and specifically for over-the-counter um, herbal supplements. Mm -hmm. So um, I do this sometimes as an exercise, but if you type in, in a Google search or go to Amazon and type in liver, the first 20 things that come up are liver supplements marketed as <laughs> liver health. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite... Um, impressive how, how commonly used these are. Um, there are a lot of, uh, and, and there may be some components that are helpful, um, uh, but there are a lot that aren't um, because a lot of these herbal supplements are toxic to the liver mm -hmm. and can cause elevated liver enzymes that can actually progress to liver failure. We see patients um, need liver transplants because their liver fails from some of these things. So I'd be really wary about, um, about herbal supplements in particular. Yeah. Are there any specific uh, ingredients or components that are classic as far as liver injury? Yeah, so um, so green tea extract certainly is uh, is somewhat common, um, but it, it tends to be uh, multivitamins that are uh, made by um, independent companies that have multiple ingredients that you have to remember are not FDA regulated. Right. So, uh, unlike your cholesterol medication or your diabetes medication where, where we know exactly what's in it, uh, some of these other medications don't. And um, and so what's on the label doesn't always reflect, right. and this is study, <laughs> on the label doesn't always reflect what's actually in the right. pill, and that's where, where patients can get in, into trouble. Yeah, I actually attended a toxicology conference, yeah. and so they took these and they looked at all these. Mm -hmm. They were, sometimes they were just sugar. Sometimes yeah. they have a prednisone, steroids that you can't, shouldn't be taking on your own. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's always that question. What yeah. is in there? Use caution with, <laughs> with those types of supplements. Good. Um, we, I think we touched on this early in the show, but let's just rehash it. How can I have a fatty liver if I don't drink alcohol? 
nausea can you sure. get at that so fatty liver is sure. you know sort of a, a term that can apply to a lot of different things yeah. right yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. alcohol also before it kind of crushes your liver it, it changes your entire liver into lard it changes your liver into like, uh, a, a bunch of fat mm -hmm. so yeah so but uh, again we went over the entire mm -hmm. process as people who uh, there are some people who are predisposed who have uh, diabetes who have high lipids who have high cholesterol who have obesity whose bmi is very high they're 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 they the liver the, the fat just goes and sticks to their liver that mm -hmm. this is this is an epidemic yeah this is growing it's not just alcohol mm -hmm. this this will soon surpass uh, everything as as a cause of liver yeah. transplantation i don't want to give your game away because <laughs> i know so that's why um but you know yeah um, another question, uh, how could one patient had, so it sounds like a couple years ago, a patient had a liver biopsy showing stage two fibrosis and, and similar findings on fibrosis scans, but then two years later had no fibrosis. Is this possible? Yeah. Is liver disease? They were treated. Yeah. So yeah. Have you, have you seen this, Avash, yeah. in, yeah. in certain disease states? If you reverse the process, yeah. right, the, the liver can grow healthy new cells. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So as we've discussed, um, that fibrosis staging basically just means the degree of scarring in the liver. And we can give it a number if we looked at it under a microscope from zero to four. When you have four, that means you have cirrhosis and the scar tissue does not go away. Mm -hmm. If it's one, two, or three, it can go all the way back to normal if you control the cause for the liver disease in the first place. So certainly it's common um, and possible. Uh, and um, we can follow those um, on, as you mentioned, repeated liver biopsy, and we actually have sort of special scans mm -hmm. that use ultrasound technology with vibration waves, essentially, that can correlate just pretty well with a liver biopsy uh, without the need of actually doing a biopsy. Yeah, good. Um, uh, we have a viewer that says, I've read we should avoid inhaling or touching toxic substances as a way to avoid liver problems. What type of toxins would this include? Nausea? Is there anything that rings a bell there? There's nothing that's coming to mind for me. Mm, not really. Yeah. It's come yeah. to mind. I mean, Sounds like maybe a myth. Well, uh, so nothing's coming to mind. I guess yeah. what I'd say is I wouldn't touch toxic substances as a general helper. <laughs> Fair enough. So I can't, I'm having a hard time coming up with a way that that yeah. would affect the liver. You know? You'd really have to, I mean, the toxin has to be ingested to potentially affect the liver. There's not yeah. really a good example of environmental toxins yeah. otherwise, right? I mean, there's a lot of the veterans were exposed to Agent Orange, but again, we couldn't, didn't find any correlation as such. Yeah. Okay. Um, a viewer asked, is there an age limit for eligibility for a liver transplant? Avash, is there a strict age limit? It's a great question. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll preface my answer by saying that uh, evaluating somebody for transplant takes into account a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. And as I always tell patients who come to see me, it's, it, I, can't, I don't have the power to put somebody on the transplant list or remove somebody from the transplant list. It's based on a transplant committee, every transplant center has that committee, it can mm -hmm. be up to 20, 30, 40 people, including medical doctors, social workers, nurses, surgeons, uh, dietitians, and more. And we look at everything as objectively as possible, making sure they don't have severe heart disease, making sure um, that they have good support for transplant and a whole lot of other factors. Regarding age, there's no strict cutoff um, for, for age. That said, we know that older patients are more likely to have a reason that would make transplant unsafe. They're more likely to have diabetes or heart disease that would 
uh, preclude the possibility of transplant. So uh, age is obviously just a number. We think about how functional they are mm -hmm. um, in terms of, uh, of their strength and mental capacity and ability to go through a transplant. I mean, I think we all know 75-year-olds um, who have a lot of chronic conditions who are very sick, and, and I know 70-year-olds who run marathons. And obviously those two patients are, would be very different if they were yeah. potential transplant candidates. It's not common to transplant patients in their 70s. The outcomes aren't as good in terms mm -hmm. of how well they survive. and that that go for most surgeries, let alone a transplant, which is one of the biggest surgeries in medicine. So the specific answer is no, there's not a hard <laughs> cutoff, um, but uh, there's so much that goes into it, it's, it's really very nuanced. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like, you know, we, we have to, when we evaluate patients for transplant, yeah. we have to make sure that their heart will mm -hmm. be able to take that 10-hour surgery yeah. Through removing one organ and replacing their right. lungs are going to be so you don't want patients to die on table because you have their, their hearts and lungs have to be uh, you know they don't have to be perfect but they have to be good enough to kind of withstand yeah. that and also after transplant we need to have there's a complex medication regimen so we yeah. want to make sure that they have that capacity uh, to take that medication regimen as well good so what is the most common reason for liver transplant in the United States the answer is hepatitis C, though that might be changing in years to come. The winner of tonight's quiz question. Is from Elkton, South Dakota. Can you give me the name again in my earpiece? George Hale. Thank you, George, for participating. A book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back. Welcome to your Prairie Doc Library at www.prairiedoc.org. Wherever you live or travel, you and your family can enjoy free and easy access 24 hours a day. Search for a specific topic, browse through the television shows, radio programs, and blog page. You, your family, and friends around the world can learn from physicians and other health professionals answering questions on a variety of medical topics. Visit your Prairie Doc Library today at www.prairiedoc.org. It was my first month in the hospital as a new internal medicine intern at a large university hospital. Upper level residents that I met during orientation asked me, what is your first rotation? When I answered hepatology, the looks I got in response told me I was in for a tough initiation. The hepatology service included some of the sickest patients in the hospital. Each one had either end-stage cirrhosis or a liver transplant, plus some acute condition requiring them to be in the hospital. They were so complicated, making clear to the newly minted Dr. Evans that a healthy liver is critical for the body to function normally. Cirrhosis, scarring of the liver, is the undesirable result of many types of chronic liver disease. Many causes of liver disease occur at random, related to autoimmune or genetic origins. However, the most common reasons patients develop cirrhosis are alcohol-related liver disease, hepatitis C, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all of which might be controlled if we catch them before cirrhosis develops. Most people know that chronic heavy alcohol use can result in cirrhosis. We don't fully understand why some heavy drinkers develop cirrhosis and some don't, but longstanding alcohol abuse does typically result in some degree of liver damage. Though it can be very difficult, 
Stopping alcohol intake can in turn stop progression of liver damage in most patients with alcohol-related liver disease. Hepatitis C, a viral infection in which some people becomes chronic and can ultimately lead to cirrhosis, has been the most common reason for liver transplant in the United States in recent years. With major developments in treatment for this disease over the last decade, we now have highly effective and well-tolerated antiviral treatments to cure hepatitis C. This virus can reside in the liver and bloodstream without causing symptoms for decades. Current recommendations advise that we screen for hepatitis C in patients who have significant risk, including all Americans born between 1945 and 1965, in addition to other high-risk groups. Talk to your doctor if that includes you. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is increasingly prevalent and now is among the most common reasons for liver failure. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is thought to be due to metabolic factors resulting in fatty deposition in the liver. It commonly occurs along with other metabolic diseases such as obesity, diabetes, and high cholesterol. Treatment of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is focused on diet and exercise and controlling those other metabolic diseases. That one month as a new physician on the hepatology service was enlightening. I learned so much about the importance of a healthy liver and I continue to use those lessons regularly in primary care. A big thank you to our guests, Nazia and Avash, for joining us tonight. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Our ears, nose, and throat are all connected and work together in many ways. Otolaryngology, beyond ear tubes and sinuses. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. For nearly 20 years, the Prairie Doc programs have provided health care information in our state and across the region. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a board member on the Healing Words Foundation which provides the funding for the Prairie Doc programs. Each week, our Prairie Doc and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth on healthcare, on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. I ask you to make a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information.
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.